Father, our hearts have a tendency to grow bored with the beautiful, to take lightly the weightiest subjects, to receive eternal truths, but have it make no earthly difference. Our hearts have a tendency to take sin lightly. What an assault on your holiness to casually partake of what made your dear son face the cross. Father, this is another Sunday, one of 52 this year. We could walk in and walk out without having it make any difference. Or we could walk in, have you walk us through the text, and have it impact our lives. Have it point out our sin. Have it lead us to repentance. Have it dry tears and infuse strength. Have it feed our souls. Let it be one of those Sundays, Lord. Help the words jump off the page and into our hearts. Help it to clear out wrong thinking and to enable us to think the thoughts of the Bible. Help this to be fuel for praise, an igniter of worship. Do this among us for the praise of your glory. God, I would rather die than preach this text without the Holy Spirit's power. I am going to do my human best, but I'm depending completely on your spirit to make the bulk live. During my preaching, would you fill the gaps of my deficiencies and help it to be a demonstration of the power of God? I'm handling holy material, precious doctrine, glorious theology. God, I want to do it justice. I do not want to speak about this glorious truth in a detached, cold manner. Help me not to speak about gospel fire while sitting on an iceberg. Help us to encounter you in the text. This is our corporate plea. Amen. In chapter 21, we begin the well-crafted epilogue. Everything up until this point has been chronological. That ends today. The narrator organizes this book in a unique manner. He, he's putting the material together in a way that he deems best. Strictly chronological until the epilogue. In the epilogue, he chooses to summarize David's life by pulling out certain events. Stories from David's earlier reign. This isn't the only book designed like this. Judges follows this pattern. Chronological until the end, then a couple of stories that summarize the period. Chapters 21 through 24 form an appendix to the book. It's sometimes called the Samuel Appendix. It's a suitable conclusion to the David story. We will begin the epilogue this Sunday and finish it over the next two Sundays. I, I, don't, want you, I don't want you to think the epilogue is a, is a hodgepodge of random stories. I want you to see the literary pattern. So let me give you the, the overview. Look at the image on the screen. The epilogue begins and ends with a national calamity. 
each calamity, uniquely enough, lasts three years. And each calamity ends by answering prayer. The beginning and the end mirror one another with a calamity. The next set of inner stories are two accounts of military victories with mighty warriors. It's, it's like you're flipping through the official military archives and read of these heroic accounts. The two center stories are actually songs, not stories. Two of David's worship songs. The only time marker we have for any of these scattered events is that they happen sometime during David's reign. We will deal with the first two accounts today. And there's a lot in there. We have a local famine, a costume party, an old-fashioned lynching, a campout, a fight with animals, a fight with giants, and someone who has 12 toes and 12 fingers. <laughs> Let the epilogue begin. Go with me on this trip back into the early reign of David. With every step, dust clouds rise from the ground. His sandals are covered in dust, and so are his lungs. A king with dusty feet and a dusty cough. King David bends down, picks up a handful of dirt, tosses it in his hand. Then he, let, then he lets it escape through his fingers. There's no moisture in this dirt. It's, it's more like a baseball infield than a crop field. One year of this, I'd say it was a fluke. Two years, incidental crop failure. Three years, this has to be a curse from God. This field used to produce a crop a hundredfold. Now you can't even find a green sprig anywhere. You can have good seed, but if you don't have water, it's useless. Three years. Three years David's been praying that God would send the rain. Like a desperate farmer, he eagerly searched the sky for rain clouds. Verse 1. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years. Notice this dramatic mark. Year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord and the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul. And on his house. Because he put the Gibeonites to death. David sought the Lord. And the Lord answered him. Answered him with a direct voice. God said, You want to know why I sent the drought? Why the grass is burnt? It's because of your predecessor. King Saul. There's blood on his hands. Blood on his house. And blood on my people. Forty years ago, Saul committed genocide on a certain people group, the Gibeonites. He killed men, women, and children. He nearly wiped them off the face of the planet. Test the blood on your hands, David. The DNA will come back registered to the Gibeonites. It's an ancient wrong that we must make right. Now, church, I need to give you the backstory. When Joshua 
first led God's people into the promised land, God told him to clear out the land of all people. Joshua did, except for one group, the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites knew Israel would wipe out everyone in the land, so they had a costume party and, and dressed up like wayfaring strangers and just happened to run into Joshua and asked, Hey, can we live here? We've never seen this land before, but we like it. Would you grant a treaty to protect us, and in return, we will be your servants. We will be your hewers of wood and drawers of water. They acted like they had been traveling for a long time, when really, they just came right over the ridge. Joshua agreed and granted them a treaty. He promised they could live in the land without fear of death. Well, Joshua was duped. He was fooled. He had the wool pulled over his eyes. But God made his people keep their promise to the Gibeonites. Even though they were cheating, lying, conniving, two-timing. Sounds like a country song, doesn't it? it? Even though they were tricked into a peace treaty, God commanded his people to keep the promise. Don't break it, Joshua 9.20. The Israelites swore never to kill the Gibeonites. Fast forward 400 years. King Saul is anointed king of Israel. Sometime during his reign. We don't know the time, we just know it happened. The actual event is not recorded in scripture. Somewhere in his long and failed reign, he decided to commit genocide on the Gibeonites. He killed married couples, working men, stay-at-home wives, the elderly, the sick, infants, teens, all of them. And I don't know if he, if, if he did what Hitler did and put them in gas chambers or more like the Rwandan genocide in Africa or the killing fields in Cambodia. Whatever he did, it was horrible. Ethnic cleansing. Bodies everywhere. Mothers holding their infants, both dead on the porch. Streets littered with bodies. Saul's cruelties of war were atrocious. Why did he do this? We don't know. Maybe he didn't like the Gibeonites' checkered past with Israel. Maybe he was drunk. Maybe he had a chip on his shoulder. Maybe he killed, him in a fit of, killed them in a fit of nationalistic zeal. We don't know. But back to David. David goes from, from this position. Holding dirt in his hands. To this position. Praying. God, you said you would send us to a land flowing with milk and honey. And the only thing flowing here are tears. Our people are starving. They have parched lips and bloated stomachs from malnutrition. Mo mothers can't nurse their infants. Fathers can't feed their families. The cattle low for water. You can see their ribs. God, your anger has arisen against us. David assumed the Lord was saying something to his people through this drought. And he was not mistaken. The cause was a broken covenant. Israel, through Joshua, had promised to protect this people group. And now they slaughtered them. The oath was honored generation after generation after generation. Until 40 years ago when Saul broke it. 
The drought was a horrible calamity, but the underlying cause was a broken covenant which had incurred the wrath of God. The whole promised land seemingly burned under the judgmental hand of God. Areas outside the promised land, fine. The promised land, burnt toast. It is hard for us to imagine a famine because food is so plenteous in our land. But what would a three-year famine do to these people? It would put them on the verge of extinction. The fridge is empty and the people die a slow death. We know and now David knows why the drought came. Saul violated the Gibeonite treaty. God brings the 40-year-old sin into public view by sending the famine. God will not let sin remain in the shadows forever. He will drag it out into the light. We see something of the character of God in this, do we not? God is a holy God. No sin passes unrecorded. God is a holy God. No sin passes unrecorded. Godly people in Israel 40 years ago, I'm sure they were horrified when it happened. But it seems that the massacre just went unresolved. The awfulness of it probably receded from people's minds. It had been years and years since this massacre took place. It wasn't even mentioned in the history books anymore. It was a half-forgotten tragedy. But hear me, church. There is no statue of limitations with the justice of God. God never forgets, and he will perfectly vindicate. God is just, and he will hold people accountable for the crimes they commit against others. All those who commit genocide will pay. All those who rape will pay. All those who rob and beat and torture will pay. I am not shaken when horrific crimes happen and they go unpunished. I weep, but I'm not shaken out of my faith. Because I know God allows no sin to pass unrecorded. He will rain down judgment. Some of you, like the Gibeonites, have had horrible injustice happen to you. I like what the text reveals about our God. Don't you want a God who shows up and deals with injustice? He will burn more than grass and toast. He will burn people. To those of you who have been violated like the Gibeonites, I want to say to you gently but firmly, demanding an answer from God is making Him accountable to you. Just rest assured, the criminals will face the justice of God. When King David wants to make the wrong right, he goes to the offended party. Verse 2. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Stop here. There must have been a few surviving people from the original ethnic cleansing. They had since replenished their population a bit. It had been 40 years, so they had some time to repopulate. If, if they had babies at the same rate our church has babies, <laughs> it's not going to take too long. Verse 3. 
And David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And how shall I make, would you underline this word, atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? David says, Our sin must be atoned for. The only way to turn God's wrath away is to atone for our sin. Atonement is the only way to appease the wrath of God. God's justice must be fully satisfied. What price can we pay to satisfy it? We will pay a price to turn away judgment. And he says, how much money do you want? We need to make restitution. We need to make it right. We need to make amends. Verse 4. The Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And David said, What do you say that I shall do for you? King David, no money payment would do. Money doesn't equate to life. We can't be bought. Nor do we want to kill people like Saul killed our parents and grandparents. Verse 5, they said to the king, the man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel. In other words, the man who tried to wipe us off the map, the man who massacred us and devastated us. Verse 6, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. Wait. I thought the Gibeonites didn't want to kill anyone like Saul killed them. Now they want seven of his sons? This is a Middle Eastern way of negotiating. We aren't asking for blood. Well, whatever you ask, I will give it. We ask for the blood of seven descendants. It's an opening ploy in negotiations. It didn't seem foreign to David at all. They want how many sons? Seven. Now after our study in Revelation, seven should stick out to you. This is the symbolic number of perfection. The Gibeonites are asking for symbolic justice. Not, not one for one. Not one dead body in exchange for one dead body. King Saul killed a lot more than seven Gibeonites. This, this, is a number of, this is a number symbolic of perfect justice. Complete retribution. This is symbolic of the perfect payment for sins. This number speaks of fullness. There's significance in the number. This is the perfect atonement for sin. Now don't you find it interesting that they did not ask for their freedom from slavery? They've been slaves for 400 years. Hewers of wood and drawers of water. Although lately it's, it's been no water to draw. Now King David must decide which of Saul's sons to send to the Gibeonites. These are all innocent men. Innocent sons. They didn't commit the crime. Their ancestors did. But the Gibeonites are thirsty for blood. Saulite blood. David opens the genealogy book or maybe searched online at Ancestry.com and starts to look at Saul's genealogy tree. Not many people left on it. Most are dead. 
No sons that had any claim to the throne were still living. David runs across the name Mephibosheth. Saul's grandson, Jonathan's son. David made a promise to him long ago he would never kill him. And David keeps his promises. Church, you see how the narrator is contrasting the two kings? Saul who breaks promises, David who keeps promises. One who is an oath breaker, the other who is an oath keeper. Saul the treaty violator, David a treaty affirmer. David will not send Mephibosheth to the Gibeonites because he made a promise. Verse 7 mentions how David spares him. Mephibosheth is spared from wrath. David continues on this disturbing task of locating who to include in the seven. Verse 8. The king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Ea, whom she bore to Saul, Armoni and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Merib, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Mehalathite. Rizpah was a concubine of Saul, like a side wife. David took her two sons, Armoni and Mephibosheth, now, this is not the, the same as the cripple Mephibosheth. It's a different Mephibosheth. One Mephibosheth was the son of Jonathan. The other Mephibosheth was the half-brother of Jonathan. Perhaps Jonathan named his son after his half-brother. The two children of Saul and now five grandsons of Saul. We aren't given their names, but they were Saul's daughter's sons. And in something like a, like a prisoner exchange, David blindfolds the seven, ties their hands behind their back, shackles their feet, and guides them to the Gibeonites. The exchange is made. Pardon for seven sons. Atonement for the perfect payment. Verse 9. And David gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites. And they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord. And the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of harvest at the beginning of barley harvest. How were these seven sons, sons being actual sons and grandsons, how were these seven sons killed? Well, some believe they were first killed, then impaled on poles. Others believe they, were, they died after being impaled on a pole. Either way, the poles were made of trees. So the seven sons were each hung on a tree on type of some type of hill. This, this, this mountain of execution there on top of. A place where they were hung to die for the sins of their father. Sons dying for the sins of their father. The Gibeonites performed a substitutionary execution. The seven are dead now. Justice is served. They are dead men hanging. Spikes keeping them on the trees. There seems to be a ritualistic legal nature of this execution. Legally, the past crimes have now been paid for. If I did not, if I did not make this Christ connection right here, 
there could be a revolt in our church. I spoke to two men before the service last Sunday and they told me, we've been talking about how you're going to get to Christ in today's text. I think you will get to him this way. He thinks you will get to Christ that way. I was trained in my schooling not only to be a pastor but also a teacher. And one of my favorite classes was a class that, that teachers took. And I learned many things. If you can get a student to arrive at the answer before you get to it, if they can anticipate what you're about to say, that is some of the best learning. I hope you can anticipate where I'm going with the seven sons hanging on a tree located on a hill. When Jesus turned to Old Testament passages, he said, these refer to me. Jesus in most of the Old Testament is not mentioned, but foreshadowed. How is he foreshadowed here? These seven were not the only men to die by crucifixion on a hill. What the seven sons could only do symbolically, God's son does for real. What the seven sons could only do symbolically, God's son did for real. They were symbolically the perfect payment for sin. Jesus was literally the perfect payment for sin. They symbolically provided pardon for the sin of others. Jesus actually provided pardon for the sin of others. Jesus did what the seven could not do because he's the true seventh man. The eternal perfect atonement. In Jesus' death, he made atonement for us. His death erased our actions. In our text, it took seven men to pardon one man. Those of you that are non-Christians, you might ask, how can the death of one man equate to the forgiveness of countless numbers of people? Well, that's a wonderful question. Jesus is the only sinless man to exist. I said earlier that there were seven innocent sons hanging. That was true and that was false. It was true in the sense that they were innocent of the Gibeonite massacre. It was false in the sense that they were sinners. They were guilty of other sins, just not that sin. There's only ever been one innocent son hanging on a tree. And he was the perfect atonement for sin. Our sin is an all-out assault on a holy God. And the penalty for that sin must be paid. God's justice must be fully satisfied. What price can we pay to satisfy it? Atonement. Atonement is the only way to appease the wrath of God. A price paid in order to turn away wrath. Christ absorbed God's wrath for sinners on the cross. That's how you're spared from wrath. You, like Mephibosheth, should have been on the tree hanging facing wrath. But someone took your place. A sinless one. And it wasn't seven sons. It was one son. There's legality to this. Your past sins have been paid for. Along with your future sins. In our story, the seven sons were hung for the sins of their father. In the Gospels, God's son 
God's son was hung for the sins of his brothers and sisters. Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Romans 5, 9, since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Colossians 1.20, Christ made peace by the blood of his cross. Now, let's make our way back into this narrative. The seven sons are dead, hanging on a tree. Verse 10. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Aon, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until the rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beast of the field by night. This mother, this widowed concubine of Saul goes to the mountain of crucifixion. She sees her two sons hanging. She stands at the foot of the tree. A mother at the foot of her son's crosses. She weeps, she wails, she knows her two sons are hanging for someone else's crimes. She brought with her rough burlap. She spreads this big fabric on a rock like a, like a lean-to. It's a little makeshift tent. This shields her from the hot, scorching sun. She's out there with no water and no living sons. She desires to protect their dignity even in death. Her sons are deprived of a proper burial. They hung exposed night and day. She camps out to shoo away the vultures by day and with a torch drive away the hyenas, jackals, wolves, and wild dogs by night. See, you can shoo away vultures and hyenas, but you can't shoo away maggots. They eat at the rotting flesh. The sight of this grieving mother tending to the lifeless, rotting corpse of her sons is an incredibly sad, tear-filled scene. The raspy, drawn-out balk of vultures, the screeching and groaning whoop of hyenas, the growling barks of wild dogs, the howling of jackals and wolves, the wet sound of a thousand wiggling maggots feasting on flesh. These are the sights and sounds and smells of Rizpah. Verse 9 says that the boys were put to death in the first days of harvest at the beginning of barley harvest. Scholars have figured out the ancient agricultural calendar. This phrase is referring to a time of year that harvest would normally take place. But remember, they are in a famine, a drought. There is no harvest. The text says she stayed until the rain came. This could mean the time when the big rains would normally arrive after harvest season. If that's the case, it was six months. Many scholars, in fact, I would say the majority, are convinced Rizpah was out there for six months. The sights and sounds and smells of Rizpah point us forward to the sights and sounds and smells of Mary. 
The sights and sounds and smells of Rizpah point us forward to the sights and sounds and smells of Mary. This wasn't the only time a mother stood at the foot of a cross and watched her son hang. This isn't the only time a mother ran to a mount of crucifixion. For you non-Christians, this is one of the pieces of evidence that proves Jesus was who he said he was. The fact that Mary watched her son hang on a cross and die proves that Jesus was virgin born. Virgin born. I call it the psychology of the cross. The psychology of the cross. If Mary knew Jesus wasn't virgin born and it was a huge hoax, would she not at the cross just blurt out, he's a fake. We made this whole thing up. He was conceived by Joseph. Let him go. But she didn't. She could look at the cross and bear it because she knew he was born for that cross. Born to hang for someone else's crimes. Born to die for the elect. Born to die for those he's chosen. Born to die for those who will repent and believe on Christ as Lord. Rizba knew her sons were hanging for the sins of one man. Mary knew her son was hanging for the sins of the world. 1 John 2.2 He is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This story and our text and Jesus' story teach us one thing. Atonement is never nice. It's always gruesome. Atonement is never nice. It's always gruesome. Atonement, the innocent in place of the guilty. Sounds great. Sounds like a wonderful transaction. However, it's not a clean one. It's a bloody one. Turning away the judgment of God doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happened on a cross. If this were a movie, it would have a warning attached to it. A certain caption that reads, The following film contains scenes that some viewers may find disturbing. Viewer discretion is advised. You can't evade the raw horror of this scene. It's heart-wrenching. The sadness defies description. It's a gory event. Atonement is brutal and violent. Not clean and tidy. This is not an accounting transaction with white, clean paper. It's a bloody transaction with a rugged, blood-stained cross. And atonement is offensive to modern sensibilities but it's God's design for redemption. Could it be? Could it be that you have the wrong view of atonement? One that is too clean? A gold cross around your neck instead of a splintery, blood-stained cross with guts on it? The cross was an instrument of torture, like an electric chair. It makes no sense to clean up an electric chair and make it something it's not. 
And it makes no sense to clean up a cross and make it something it's not. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they nailed him to the tree? Were you there when they pierced him in his side? Were you there when the sun refused to shine? If you were there, you would never think atonement was clean. No, you would say, sometimes it causes me to tremble. Tremble. Verse 11. When David was told that Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh-Gilead who had stolen them from the public square in Bethshan where the Philistines had hanged them on the day of the Philistines on the day the Philistines killed Saul on Gilboa verse 13 and he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan and they gathered the bones of those seven who were hanged and they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin and Zela, the tomb of Kish, his father. David, David hears of this mother's heroism. How she stayed, stayed up on that mountain to fight off the vultures and the hyenas. How she refused to have her sons picked off by the scavengers. He, he heard and it moved him. He decides to honor the dead bodies of the seven by giving them a proper burial. And he's also reminded of the bones of Saul and Jonathan some 50 miles away. They died in battle and were buried in a rushed fashion. He collects all the bones, these seven men plus Saul and Jonathan, and he has a reburial. He's going to give them a dignified, honorable burial. He will lay their bones to rest in their ancestral tomb. There are three errors in the text. Three errors in the text. One error made by David. One error made by us. One error made by God's ancient people. Let's talk about the error made by David first. Let me ask you, church, was this what God intended to happen? Did God want David... To hand over seven sons of Saul to die for Saul's sin? I don't think so. Let me explain. David first sought advice from God on why the drought happened. That was good. David then sought advice from the Gibeonites on how to appease God's wrath. That was bad. David went to God to find out the problem but did not go to God to find out the solution. David asked the wrong people. How shall I make atonement? He should have asked God. Now, the demand for capital punishment is biblical. Some of you may disagree. It's okay. I'll give you the, the liberty to be wrong. The, the demand for capital punishment is biblical. Saul should die for his sins. But his sons shouldn't die for his sins. The murder of the innocent made right by the murdering of more innocent? This isn't God's way. God's way of dealing with sin involved repentance. God's way of dealing with sin was not human sacrifice. 
There was an animal sacrificial system in place at this time, but never a human sacrifice. It seems to me that David broke God's specific command in Deuteronomy 24, 16. The law strictly forbid punishing the son for the father's crimes. I'll quote the verse for you. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. Now let's put this whole, sin, this, this whole scene in a modern context. I say modern. Modern-ish. My wife spent three months in Cambodia working with missionaries. Her dad has an orphanage in Cambodia now. Imagine if someone, through some genealogical trace, found Pol Pot's descendants. And they demanded seven of them be put to death because Pol Pot tried to exterminate the Cambodian people. Pol Pot needs to pay for his crimes, but not his descendants. He's dead, so now you're just going to find some relatives? And you say, Kyle, let me push back on you a bit. Didn't God send the rain after the seven were killed? No. He sent the rain after David honored the nine people with a proper burial. Verse 14b, I did not read it, but verse 14b, and after that, God responded to the plea for the land. I I do not want to resolve this situation neatly if the text doesn't, but it seems clear to me that the drought-concluding rains happened after David acted on the burials. So here's the summary. The death. The death of Saul's sons was not God's idea. The death of God's son was God's idea. Both these seven sons and Jesus were buried. The difference, the rains came after the seven sons were buried. The sun arose, the S-O-N, After Jesus was buried, up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. First the error made by David, now the error made by us. And I want you, church, please listen to me. Please listen to me. Every time there is a drought or famine or COVID, you don't need to go assigning reasons for why it happened. The reason for 9-11 was... People go around styling themselves as prophets, but they are no prophets. David had access to some things you don't have, like the audible voice of God. He received a direct message from God explaining the reason for that drought. We will never have that. Plus, Israel was told directly that if a famine or drought came while they were in the promised land, there was a specific reason for it. Leviticus 26.20, and mainly Deuteronomy 28.24. And you say, Kyle, well, what do I do if my, what do I do if there's a famine in my business for three years? Or I hit three red lights on the way to church. (laughs) Email Pastor Daniel Hurd about that one. (laughs) Weather the famine, friend. Weather the famine. This text does not give you warrant to assign previous sins to specific events in your life. 
All right, the first error made by David, the second error commonly made by us, the third error made by God's ancient people. Israel made a covenant in the name of the Lord not to harm the Gibeonites. So the Gibeonites were under covenantal protection. Saul broke the code. He broke the covenant. He broke the promise. This sounds elementary to us, but it is fundamental to what God wants his people to be. He wants his people to be promise keepers. Yeah, you you tricked us, but we made a promise. And we keep our promises. And the reason we keep our promises is because our God keeps his promises. See, with this act, God's people, Israel, lost their distinctiveness. They were just like all the other nations surrounding them that didn't keep their promises. God wants his people to be distinct, to be promise keepers. Speak the truth. Keep your promises. The kingdom of God was visible to the world through a nation, Israel. Today, the kingdom of God is visible to the world through the church, this one. So keep your promises because you worship a God who keeps his promises. You promised the bank that you would pay off that car loan. Do it. You promised your spouse to remain faithful unto death. Do it. You promised to meet with someone on a certain day at a certain time. Be there. When you took out your student loan, you promised to pay it back. So keep your promise. You promised to finish that job. Be a truth teller. Finish. Don't be careless with keeping your promises. God isn't careless with keeping his promises. Don't lose your Christian distinctiveness by failing to keep your word. You, will, you do not have what David had. You, you don't have the audible voice of God telling you and you didn't keep your word. But you have something better. The Holy Spirit. And he will convict you and point it out. The first 14 verses are the Gibeonite section. That's where we spent most of our time. The Philistine section is verses 15 through 22. This is much, much shorter. The Gibeonite section, the Philistine section. In the Gibeonite section, seven sons die. In the Philistine section, four giants die. We, we have in these verses the exploits of the giant killers in Israel. It's a military analytic report of battles. It, it reads like the chronicle of, of exploits. Names, places, weapons, results. There are four battles in this short section, four brief episodes. We will go through each battle quickly because that's how the narrator intends for us to read them. Battle number one found in verse 15. There was a war again between the Philistines and Israel. And David went down together with his servants and they fought against the Philistines. Notice this phrase, and David grew weary. And Ishbibinob, one of the descendants of the giants, whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze and who was armed with a new sword, fought to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistines and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, You shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of God. 
this battle seems to be a transitioning battle for David. He was still going out with the army until this day. This was the day it stopped. I think this was before chapter 18. Remember when they refused to let David go out to battle there? David is older in this story. He has arthritis, a bad back, and sore knees. He's battle-weary, and he's not the David who killed Goliath anymore. So they essentially take away his car keys. You're not driving any longer. We can't have you dying out there. Now, what brought on this decision? David almost died in battle. The giant Ishbibinob almost killed him. Ishbibinob. You better be a giant with that name. That is just begging for swirlies in middle school. All right, 15 through 17, that's the first battle. The second battle is in verse 18. After this, there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sabakai, the Hushathite, struck down Saph, who was one of the descendants of the giants. Now, the timing of this second battle is not identified for us, but here we are introduced to the ongoing battle again. The Philistines were a constant threat to Israel, so it's no surprise that there were battles after battles. Here, another giant falls, and the giant killer's name is listed because he needs to go down in the history books. First battle, second battle, third battle, verse 19. And there was again war with the Philistines at Gob, and Elhanan, the son of Yerorgim, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Wait a minute. It says another guy killed Goliath. I thought David. I thought David killed Goliath when he was just a boy holding a sling and stone. Well, one of three things has happened here. Either there is another Goliath, there could be at least two Goliaths, Goliath being a title for the strongest giant in the land. We've seen two Mephibosheths, two Barzalis, this would be two Goliaths, not, not unheard of. So either there was another Goliath, or two, there was a scribal error. The, this passage in Chronicles records the correct name and, and this one in 2 Samuel is, is a transmission error. The Bible is infallible in the original manuscripts. No question there. But this could be a small copyist error. In, in a parallel account, it says, he struck down Lame, the brother of Goliath. And, and Lame, the brother of, is left out of the second Samuel account, but it's in the Chronicles account. So, same account in, in two books. So, either there was another Goliath, or there was a scribal error, or three, Elhanan is another name for David. One of these three is right. It doesn't affect any significant doctrinal issues, so nothing to get bent out of shape about. I, I hold the second view, lean towards it. All right, now the last battle, verse 4. You're going to find this in 20 and 21. And there was again war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number. And he also was descended from the giants. Now, you can go online and see how this genetic feature isn't incredibly rare. But I do like how the narrator is like, he has six fingers on his right hand, six fingers on his left hand. On his right foot, six toes. On his left foot, six toes. And then he informs us as if we can't count 
That's 24 digits. He's a grotesque freak, a giant with 24 digits. But what got this man in trouble was not his fingers or his toes, but his mouth. Alistair Begg said it wasn't his anatomy, it was his attitude. He ran his mouth, and one of David's mighty warriors shut it. Verse 21, and when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shammai, David's brother, struck him down. Whose brother? David's. This is David's third oldest brother. The whole family was filled with giant killers. And then the author, the narrator, summarizes all these four giants and four battles in verse 22. These four descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Snapshots. Snapshots of four battles, of four giants, of four heroes. Now, church, I will end with this application. Go out and slay your giants. <laughs> Just kidding. That's, that's never what you're going to hear me saying. Um, here's, the, here's the closing truth. Israel had some amazing giant killers, but Jesus Christ is the ultimate giant killer. Israel had some amazing giant killers, but Jesus Christ is the ultimate giant killer. The record of these giant killers provide us with anticipation toward the ultimate giant killer, Jesus. These four giant killers brought down giants from one nation that opposed God. Jesus will come and bring down giants from every nation that opposes God. These four giants wield the sword with their hands. Jesus will wield the sword with his mouth. King David, you'll remember in our text here, was in need of someone to intervene on his behalf. One of these giant killers saved his life, took out a sword and protected King David. Remember when Jesus was in the garden and Peter took out his sword? And Jesus said, put it away. Now is not the time for me to be killing giants. But that day is coming. There's a bigger giant yet to fall. He's more grotesque than the 24-digit giant. He's a beast, and his name is Satan. He's the old red dragon. And our hero will come and bring him down with the sword of his mouth. Father, we have been exposed to your truth. It has fed us, strengthened us, invigorated us, ministered to us, and comforted us. Thank you. Thank you for the many workings of your word. Amen.